This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 185, and today I sat down with Kate Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Sun & Swell Foods. Sun & Swell Foods offers a wide range of wholesome, healthy snacks and pantry staples, all packaged in plant-based compostable packaging, and they're leading the way within the CPG industry away from plastic. Kate's story about transitioning the brand to plastic-free and creating a company that's a force for good is truly inspiring. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Kate. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Sun and Swell Foods. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. So you're in Santa Barbara. I'm in Los Angeles. We're not too far away. You know, there's an amazing actual restaurant in Santa Barbara. It's gluten-free everything. And my husband has a gluten allergy and we literally drive like an hour and a half or however far it is right from LA to Santa Barbara for this one restaurant. I think it's called like Lily Cafe or Lilac something. Oh, Lilac Patisserie. Yeah. Yes. Oh my, that place is amazing. It's delicious. They have like pastries that are in the whole place and cakes and everything. And it's all gluten-free. We usually get our birthday cakes from there. So yummy. It's amazing. The place tastes, I don't know, it's like part French or something, but it's all just the most incredible things that my German husband from Europe, of course, like misses with all of the pastries. And there's like nowhere in LA where you can get a great pastry that's gluten-free. Yeah. Which is funny, right? You would think there'd be one on every corner, but (laughs) it's LA. But instead we're driving up to Santa Barbara for it. (laughs) Who would have thought? But yeah, we love coming up there. Really beautiful place. But where are you from originally and what was childhood like for you? So I actually grew up in Ohio, a small town called Hudson. And I lived there up until I was in my freshman year, all the way through my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, we moved to just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. So that was a a big transition at the time. I didn't want to leave, but in hindsight, so grateful for it because it made me realize there's like other things in the world that I want to go explore. I think if I wouldn't have made that move, I might have stayed in Ohio forever, which would have been great too, but I'm excited that I went down a different path. And yeah, I finished up high school in North Carolina. So real quick, as a kid, though, back in Ohio, what was childhood like? How many siblings did you have? What did your parents do? Can you kind of paint the picture of what it was like as a kid? Yes. So I two siblings, an older brother and an older sister. So I was the baby. And dad was a general counsel. So kind of, you know, rose the ranks in the corporate world. And my mom stayed at home with us and raised us. And she's since we've all left the house, done many other things, but yeah, grew up in kind of a, I guess a standard setting for some people. Yeah. What kind of things were you into as a kid? Like, did you do sports or what were some of the favorite things that you did? I was really not athletic at all, which is funny because now I like love fitness and working out and exercise. But growing up, I was like the person who was like the last person to finish the mile, like in gym class. Since I've yeah. run like three marathons. So I've come oh. a long way since then. But um, yeah, but I love music. I liked art. Like I don't do a lot of this creative stuff anymore, but I would like do sewing. I'd like sew dresses and sew stuffed animals and yeah, a bit more on the creative side. But I was also very, like I was a very studious student. I studied really hard. I got really good grades. I was more analytical. Like I loved math and science over like history was like 
probably my least favorite subject. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were little? Did you remember like your first dream of what you wanted to be? Yeah, I wanted to be a fashion designer, which is so funny because I'm, I feel like that is not the right. Well, I think our first idea of what we want to be is always like a little off, you know? You know, yeah, a little off. And I think that the roots just came from like, I like, like, even if you look today, like I kind of live in this world of consumer and brand. And I think that's what I liked about it. I like that Mm -hmm. it was super tangible. And that evolved as I got a little older and like realized I really liked math and stuff like that, that evolved to like wanting to be a CFO at a fashion company. So it's kind of like there's been, I'm not in fashion right now, but there's been this connection to consumer and products since I was really young, something that resonated with me there. Yeah. It's funny how maybe like small ideas of something as a kid, you're like, oh, that's what I want to be because of just some small aspect of it, right? That maybe you don't quite understand. I think for me, I've said this on the show a few times, I wanted to be a teacher when I was like in Mm. third grade because I had Mm -hmm. this really cool looking teacher. Like she had short hair and cool glasses and like (laughs) she was just a boss, right? Like she felt she was a real like kind of leader. Obviously, a lot of teachers are, but as a kid, I was like, oh, I want to be like, that like look yeah. cool like be yes. in front of a bunch of people be the leader yes. but there's yes. other things I didn't really realize at the time yeah. you know were things that I it was the attributes of her in that situation and her job that I liked it wasn't really teaching teaching yes me. yeah that's interesting and so and looking back on your childhood is there anything entrepreneurial that you did like maybe one of the first memories you have of being like a creative problem solver or starting a business or you know, I don't know, something that kind of points to leadership and entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's funny because I definitely never thought I would be an entrepreneur. I don't think I'm the typical like entrepreneur who really admired entrepreneurs and wanted to go do it myself. And start. Like I, I kind of fell into it. But when I look back on when I was like in my childhood, there were things, silly things. Like I used to, when I was really young, I would go with my siblings around her neighbor's house and like sell them like cheese. It was so weird. It's all like cheese, like trying to just trying to like sell something for money, right? Like we were trying to do this little business. One time I ran like a restaurant for my family where we went and picked up McDonald's. Then I like created a menu and I sold it to them and I totally lost money on the whole thing, but whatever. And then, you know, I did like lemonade stands. I sold friendship bracelets. So I definitely had all those little things over the years where this idea of commerce was like, I was doing it in bits and pieces. And then also definitely like a knack for leadership in just whether it was like clubs or especially like in classes, if it was like a team project, I'd usually step up and take the lead for that. I had, you know, those types of things, definitely leadership from a younger age for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you went from Ohio to North Carolina. What was it like to be in North Carolina? That was a huge change. (laughs) Most of the changes ended up being positive. It was hard for me to move. We had like, not just our, all of our friends in Ohio, but a lot of our family there. So that was hard to move away from all of them. This is like a funny, I just like a tiny anecdote of how things are different. So when I lived in Ohio, up until my freshman year of high school, I went by my legal name, which is Laurel. And my middle name's Kathleen. Now I go by Kate, because when I moved from Ohio to North Carolina, I didn't like the way they pronounced my name. It was like Laurel. It was very like a Southern draw on it. Didn't like it. Changed my name to Kate. And I feel like it was almost like this identity shift for me is like, Mm. oh, I'm in this new place. And in Ohio, I loved Ohio, but I feel like North Carolina was like the first time I was like really stepping into like myself, like maybe my Mm -hmm. authentic self started to like shine through a little bit more when I was just given the space to kind of like explore new things a little. And it definitely instilled a sense of adventure and wanting to kind of like see what else is out there and explore. That's awesome. So you're saying when you were in North Carolina, you changed your first name and you started going by your middle name? Yeah. Middle name's Kathleen. And I started going by Kate. So like a shortened version of my middle name. That is so funny. So when I, I don't know, escaped is the wrong word, but when I got out of Delaware, (laughs) because I grew up in Delaware, a very small town, And I had always dreamed of being in New York City and I really wanted to model. And so I ended up signing with this agency. And I've told this story on one of the episodes 
But basically, as part of signing with this contract with this top modeling agency in New York City, I realized that there were a lot of Jessicas. And my first name is actually Jessica. So I remember looking at the board and I was like, there's five Jessicas? What am I going to be? Another Jess or Jesse, Jessica? I'm like, I can't. And that's who I left behind in Delaware. So who am I now? Because it really, same thing for you, it sounds like it was like this kind of rebirth or this new, like, this is me by myself living in New York, living the life I want for myself. And it's almost like, I was like, okay, what else can I be? And they're like, what's your middle name? And I said, Lee. And they're like, all right, well, we'll just call you Lee. <laughs> yeah. I was yep. like, but Lee, everyone's going to think I'm an Asian male. But And they're like, yep, but it's fine. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, it's unique. <laughs> yeah. They were right. I think I just didn't realize I'd be stuck with it like, you know, 20 years later. (laughs) Does your family still call you Jessica? They call me Jess. Yeah. Everybody calls me Jess. My husband's like, who is that? Yeah. Same. And I like, I'll sign like cards to my family, like Laurel slash Kate. It's like, that's funny. yeah, Yeah. I got an email the other day from my uncle and it was like, Jess, blah, blah, blah. And then I like wrote back and I signed, you know, best Lee. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I should probably just say Jess, you know, that's who he knows. (laughs) It's so funny. Amazing. So you were in North Carolina, you're going by Kate now. And Mm -hmm. so what else kind of happened, I guess, in high school, you're going through your high school years in a brand new town, brand new state and city and everything. What was it like? Yeah, it was actually really interesting because the first year in North Carolina, my parents put us in private school. And first of all, the private school was like an hour away. So that was like really Mm. a long commute. But the school system like that I grew up in Ohio was a really, really good public school system. It was a little bit, the public school system wasn't as good as in North Carolina. So they ended up putting me in a private school. Mm. And while I definitely found my crew there, it was really hard to like, everyone had been there from like K through like since kindergarten. So everyone was like friends for their entire life. And then I came in, I definitely found my group, but it was like the group of kind of newer people. You know, it's like my best friend from high school that was one of those years was like the other girl who was new that year. And so that's hilarious. The two newbies. Yeah. It's led to an amazing friendship, um, long lasting friendship. So I think I liked that, but I felt like it still was like a hard place to fit in. I had a couple more years, decided I wanted to go to public school to like round out the years and made that change. And I remember it was really funny because when you walked into the public school, there was like a sign on the door that was like, just a reminder, like you can't bring your guns and I know. I was literally just thinking that. I was like, it, it probably was a gun sign. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, Gosh. like this is different, but everyone was like so kind and I loved it. That was such a good experience and still like some best friends from that time too. But it was definitely, it's funny because it was kind of like this prestige private school versus like this like kind of laid back public school. And I think I realized about myself is. I find more joy being surrounded by people who don't necessarily care about, I don't know, it's just like people who are kind and just down to earth, like is a little bit more my vibe. And Mm -hmm. I've realized that throughout my life. Yeah. How do you filter for that? I always find for a long time, I don't think I knew how these days, now that I'm older and wiser, I kind of follow that simple philosophy. It's like, if somebody's not making you better or feel better about yourself, just don't be around them. And that maybe they're not making you feel better about yourself because of them. And maybe it's because of you. Like maybe there's like some, you know, shadow that's living in me that is making it hard for me to be around somebody like whatever it is, just surrounding yourself by people who are bringing you joy and making you a better person tends to serve you well in life. Yeah. That's interesting. It's always interesting. I feel like to try to I don't know, filter and kind of create that tribe, a community around yourself yeah. with people that are just good people and yeah. have the right intentions or just also have like the same values in terms of friendship and right. maintaining that, which is yeah, tough yeah. as you you know get older and get busier. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so you switched over to the public school. You felt like you were able to find your people. You were able to make some friends. And what did you decide to do after that? Did you want to go off and study? Or what was your kind of goal? What did you want to be? I guess I probably not a fashion designer anymore. Yeah, right? no, I kind of have moved on from that. So at this point, it was like ingrained in my head. I was going to college. Like that was just, I don't think I ever thought twice about it. Mm-hmm. That's just what I was you know, supposed to do after high school. After that experience of moving to Ohio to North Carolina, I got to this place where I was like, okay, I want to try something else new. Like there are some great schools in North Carolina, I'll apply, but I really want to try something even 
bigger than North Carolina. Like what could be next? And I literally wanted to move to California because this is like when the OC came out and it just <laughs> looked so cool. Like it's such a shallow reason to want to move to California. It just looked awesome. I mean, every high schooler makes shallow yeah. decisions about yes. when and why they want to go to school. So I mean, I did the same yeah. exact thing. I was like, oh, yeah. the campus is really cute. Yeah, it's really pretty. Exactly. <laughs> and it was like, so California was my first choice. And then I was also like, but if it's not California, I want to be somewhere warm. So I applied to like a bunch of schools in California and Arizona and Florida. And I was like, I want to move somewhere warm. It's like my goal. And I didn't know what exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to like be a businesswoman. I just had this like vision of me. How did you know that? And where did that vision come from? I think it came from my dad. Like my dad was a exec at like a public company. Like he had that corporate experience. That was like what I thought I was going to be on the path to do. But it's funny because I remember as like a high school student, have this vision of my vision is in New York City, even though I've like never lived in New York City. But like walking down the street with like a suit and a briefcase, which is I've like never carried a briefcase, but that vision of like, yeah, this is, you know, 20 years ago of being like a businesswoman. I don't even know what it meant. It was way too broad for me to even understand. But that's what I wanted to be. It wasn't a teacher. It wasn't a doctor or anything like that. It was like, I wanted to be in the business world. Very vague, but that's, I guess what I was, that's what I was chasing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe you had seen your dad have some success in the business world and maybe you're like, all right, that looks like a really good path. (laughs) Yeah. I think we tend to mirror our parents sometimes. Like in hindsight, like that's probably exactly, exactly what it was. It's very true. I mean, a lot of people on the show that have had entrepreneurial parents, you know, I had a great interview the other day where she talked about how her dad was very entrepreneurial and it was, you know, because he took this great risk and leap into building his own business. It was inspiring to her and helped her go through all these wonderful schools and education. And she just, you know, was like, wow, that looks like a really amazing thing to be able to do. So you went to UC Santa Barbara. You studied economics. Yeah, technically it was business economics. That's what they called it, I think, to get people who we were interested in business to the school, but it was just econ. So it was like, it was economics, which I had no interest in, but it got me to California. So there you go. Yeah. I studied business economics with an accounting emphasis. So it was kind of like a minor, I guess, in accounting and all just kind of like following this. I knew I liked numbers and that was like, it kind of like led me to there. Like I was good mm-hmm. at numbers. It's like, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it, but yeah. All right. And so what did you end up doing with it when you graduated? So my first job was I worked as a CPA and auditor at Deloitte, which is basically, yeah, I was like the auditor who came in and checked all your books and made sure that you're... Was that fun? (laughs) Like the actual work itself, I wouldn't say is fun work. It was super, like you were working on teams and you were in your teams at your clients. It was a bunch of people who had just graduated. So it was like, it was the colleagues, it's professional services. So everybody there is like somebody who's good at working with clients. So you kind of naturally get this group of people who are easy to talk to and fun to be around. And so I really liked my colleagues. I love the team aspect of it. There was a lot of opportunity to like take on project leadership roles. So a lot of awesome, just soft skills, that kind of stuff that I got out of it. It's funny because I, again, wouldn't say the work is fun, but I will still find myself like as far, I've moved very, very, very far away from being an accountant, but I like still find like some satisfaction doing some of our bookkeeping stuff. Yeah. And I know I shouldn't. You're saying that like it's a secret. You're like, sometimes I like to review the books. (laughs) Like last night I sit up late doing some accounting stuff, like which it's not even like, it's so funny. Like I shouldn't be touching accounting at this point, but it's weird. It's like a blanket, a comfort blanket or something. It's just like I can do it. It's black and white. Everything about entrepreneurship is so ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Accounting is black and white. And there's something like satisfying about that. Like you cross it off the list, you're done. And like, there's no question about it. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. And so um, after that, you went to work at Kurt Solomon. So what was the reason for the shift there? Yeah. So in between, I actually got my MBA. So I was three years at Deloitte. And then I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I say this like genuinely surprised. I somehow got into Harvard. <laughs> I don't know how. I had a really good test scores and whatever. But I got into Harvard, went there for my MBA, and came out of it still not knowing what I wanted to do exactly. But one of the most common paths coming out of Harvard Business School is going into consulting. So mm-hmm. that's like, I just kind of followed the same, followed that, you know, I guess the herd mentality at the time because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. 
And Kurt Salmon, which is now part of Accenture, specifically focuses on consulting in the retail and consumer products industry. So again, like I knew I wanted to be in retail, I knew I wanted consumer or something like that. So it was a way to like be in that niche, but without knowing like what function I wanted to be in the niche. Yeah. So it got me in the industry in a broad way. That's awesome. I think there was a guy named Al Sambar that worked there, but I'm not sure yeah, if that was the same time. Totally. Do you I know him? Yeah. Oh my I gosh. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. He was one of the early investors in my company, Wear Away, and I know he's at XRC Labs now. XRC, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my really close colleagues is at works with Al now at XRC. So that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I went through the accelerator too. Oh, awesome. Cohort number Very two, cool. I think it was. Amazing. Yeah. So you got to work with Al a little bit over there and yeah. you were there for four years. So what was your experience like there? What were some of the biggest takeaways? Yeah. So I feel like I started off as the worst consultant and I left as an amazing consultant. So oh, nice. when I started, so consulting is very similar to entrepreneurship in some ways. Everything's like, it's all about 80-20. It's not black and white. You're constantly having to like just choose a lane and like stick with it. You know, it's a very, a lot of similarities I would say between the two. You don't waste as much time making slides when you're an entrepreneur, but a lot of other things are similar. And I came from the world of audit where everything was black and white. It was a whole shift in mindset. Like I had been trained in a career to like operate one way. And then I was moving into like a totally different way of thinking and a way of working. And like, I came home like almost every day, like crying my first year. I mean, not my first year, but like the first year I had a lot of tears because I just felt like I sucked at it. Mm. I remember like being put on a project. I just like couldn't do it. Like I literally, what? it's so silly. Like in hindsight, it's so silly, but like, okay, we had to do these case studies. We had to make case studies of the project we were working on was with a shoe company. They wanted us to do case studies of shoe companies and like how they evolved over time. And so I was doing case studies on like companies like Kohan and stuff. One page PowerPoint slide case study for each one. They told me with like history and like some other things, they're like time box, like each of these an hour. And I mean, I was spending so much time on it because I was trying to find all the perfect information to be able to tell the perfect story and to get the case study perfect. Like I couldn't elevate high enough. I couldn't see the big picture. And it was just my first project. And it was so hard for me. And I was like, why am I so bad at this? Luckily, a couple of the managers and partners had patience with me and spent a lot of time coaching and mm-hmm. took me like a year. But by like the time I left, I was a total rock star at it. And I've learned as an entrepreneur to embrace failure, but it mm-hmm. didn't even come until later in my entrepreneurial journey. I was not okay with failure for many, many years of my life. It was, I was a straight A student. Like I was a perfectionist. Yeah. Like I had to achieve and I always achieved with my grades. And so to go to a job where I felt like I was like, awesome. I, you know, got in right after the interviews. I feel like I did a great job on the interviews and I come in, I feel like I just suck at the work. Mm-hmm. That was really hard. And that was the first time in my life I ever worked in an environment where they gave intentionally to everybody a lot of constructive criticism because they were trying to coach you. But like I, at the time was like, oh my gosh, criticism. Like this is the worst thing that I could possibly get. That's funny. Yeah. Cause I don't know how much criticism you got before. Cause you're just like acing your way through. Right. It's almost like my studious habits and my ability to study really hard and do really well and just work really hard. Like that got me a really long way in life. Right. And then all of a sudden I, and maybe in a different career, like Mm -hmm. that could have kept being like, I could have continued to just rely on that. It was also this mentality that I had, I mean, that I'm still like overcoming like this. I call it like the recovering workaholic is like how I feel is this idea that the more hours you put in, the better you are, the more results you're going to give. Like that's when I was in consulting. I'm like, well, if I stay until like 4 a.m. working really, really hard, like I'm going to be like so good. And really like the people who do it best figure out how to get it done in like five hours, like in the, you know, like leave by five. And at the time I equated like doing well as working really hard and working really long hours and Mm -hmm. not working smarter, just working longer. Like it's like kind of the mentality I think I was taking. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And so I'm sure part of that was you actually maybe had to ask for help for the first time. Yeah. And I don't like asking for help, like especially coming like from, I do consider myself like a very humble person. It's funny. People tell me I'm like, I'm usually, I always have to like downplay that I went to Harvard. Like I can't even really talk about it without being like, oh, you know, it's like, but 
you come in and you're like, oh my gosh, people expect me to be so smart. Like they expect me to be able to know all this. Like I should be able to do all this. And in hindsight, nobody had like expectations. I'd know how to do the work perfectly from day one, but I thought they did. And I cared that they did. And it's just, I got really caught up in that at first. And I think my whole journey as a consultant in that environment was learning to like get over perfectionism. It was learning to be okay with like not being right all the time and, you know, being okay with failure. That was like the first time I really had to go through all those lessons, which were ended up serving me well. And I don't always consider myself the typical entrepreneur because I think a lot of the stories you hear entrepreneurs are like, oh, I was, you know, I always like a bad student. They're like, I dropped out of, I dropped out of college. They're used to failure. (laughs) Exactly. And so I'm opposite of that. And I've just kind of had to learn to be more like that over the years. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like a really almost a pivotal experience that you had there, you know, because you really were able to build skills that were so different than what you had been building over so many years. And so what did you decide to do after that? And how did you come up with the idea for Sun and Swell Foods? Yeah. So I was four years into consulting. I loved the work, but I had made it to like a manager position, which was kind of like you make it to manager. And then like the next step is, you know, senior manager. And I was kind of like, do I want to keep doing this? I was feeling a little burnout hours wise again on me, not the job. Not everybody was working as long as I was. This is like a me thing. I was feeling a little burnout. I didn't necessarily want to do it as like a lifelong career. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And Really, like the beginning of my journey started, I went to like a yoga retreat in Esalon where I was like, I need to like use this weekend to Esalon's and Big Sur. I was like, I went with a girlfriend. I was like, I need to use like some, I just need some space. Like I need some space to think. And I had just a wake up call during that weekend that I'm like, I need to let go of this career. Like this is not what I'm trying to do. I don't know what's on the other side, but I need to let go of this, which I am not really anymore, but at the time. I like structure. I like stability. I didn't mm-hmm. like taking risks. So the thought of just leaving my job without a plan was super terrifying. At the same time, I was married and my husband had a job. So that's how I like mitigated the risk. I was like, yeah. I have some space to take that risk. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do next. I just knew I needed some space to like leave my job and figure it out. And I knew I wanted to do something in the world of health and wellness. And I had a couple ideas brewing. At first, it was... I was like taking some classes to be like a health coach. I was like, maybe I want to be a health coach. I One of the ideas was starting a line of healthy snacks because I personally was having trouble finding snacks that like met my dietary restrictions, which aren't crazy. I just, I try to eat a real food, like whole food, real food diet. So I try to avoid artificial things. And there's a lot more options now, but when we started, not as many. And so it, that's where the idea of sudden well started brewing and I just started spending time on it. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I love building something. Like, I didn't know I was a builder, but I love building and started to gain traction. And it just kind of gave me, I for the longest time, I called it like my side project. I was like, oh, I have this little like project. And I was calling it like a project even after we were in like 100 retailers. And I was like, this is a business. Like, this yeah. isn't like a project anymore. Like, this is a real business. But I even had trouble admitting to myself, even when I was starting a business, I like wouldn't even admit to myself I was starting a business. I thought I was just doing something on the side. So yeah, it was kind of like a slow roll into it. Like, and I think that was what I needed to, as a someone who's not a big risk taker at the time, now I am at the time, I just needed to be able to like ease myself into it and feel good about what I was doing before I went all in on it. Amazing. And so when did you know when to go all in on it? I think that's a big question for a lot yeah. of entrepreneurs. There's a lot of different stories on the show. I've heard almost 200 and it's really so different. Some people keep the side hustle for a long time. Some people yeah. jump right in, you know, obviously it depends on everybody's different financial situation. But for you, when did you know it was the right time to go full-time? Yeah. So what's interesting about us is so my husband's my co-founder. And I, when we started, because he was working, it gave me the space to do, I was launching Sun and Swell. I was still exploring some of this health coaching stuff. And I was also, I was randomly teaching bar three. I was like a bar instructor, like a fitness instructor. Cause that's something I always wanted to do and never had time for. So I was kind of doing a lot of little things mm-hmm. and just slowly it started to take up like more and more of my time until it was full-time. But I would say 
as a team, my husband and I really committed, like, cause we were doing it together. Like this is our whole thing is like, he quit his job. It also came full time. And so like, we didn't have that backup. We didn't have the safety plan anymore. Like the safety plan right. was gone. And that was about from like idea to when it happened was probably about a year and a half, but it was about like a year of me taking it really seriously, like really putting time into it. And he was doing, you know, evenings and weekends and with me and I was spending all day on it, but that was kind of like our collectively, like when I would say like, we really took the plunge because it was like, I didn't have any security anymore. That safety blanket of his income was just like gone. And now it was like, we're relying on our company now and we've raised money, but we haven't raised institutional. So like, we've kind of like bootstrapped quite a bit, bootstrapped quite a bit, like have slowly built up like income, but it wasn't like, okay, like we're going to go raise institutional, take a salary. Now it was like, we're going to like do what we can on to like both run this business, but also like live in Santa Barbara, which is where we live. So yeah, not a cheap place to live. So you figure it out, you know? And was this pre-kids that you guys? Pre-kids. Yes. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. I mean, like we, especially being bootstrapped, I mean, the grind of like the first, I mean, we don't make anything ourselves anymore, but like when we started, like I literally was making products myself. I mean, it was like, it was the true like grind of like the first couple of years of a startup. And I mean, working until like 2am, I mean, just, it it was, but it was so fun. Like it was such an exciting time. It was like this early time, early launch. I just wouldn't have the time to do that anymore with the kids, but Luckily, we got those years out before the kids, and then they came a few years later. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So where did the idea for and the commitment to compostable packaging, where did that come from? So basically we launched Sun and Small with this mission of bringing healthy snacks to the market. It was didn't have anything to do about sustainability. It was all about just health. Mm-hmm. However, at the end of the day, I knew I wanted to be like a brand that as a consumer brand, I wanted to be a brand that like does good in the world. And about a year in, like we kind of scaled enough that we got to order this like first big run of custom packaging. So when you're first starting like a CPG company, a lot of times you're doing like stock packaging, putting stickers on or whatever, just to get in the market. So the first time we ever got to do a run of our own packaging, tens of thousands of units showed up at like our warehouse on a pallet, a huge like giant pallet of plastic bags, like with our logo all over it. And it was just kind of like, this is really exciting. Like what a big milestone, but it was also like, eh, like we just like created tens of thousands of plastic bags for us. And if we want to grow and scale to the size we want to, this is just going to keep getting bigger. So that's what triggered me to start exploring. Like if there's a more sustainable way, we started selling in compostable packaging. Like originally we're like, okay, let's just keep selling healthy snacks, but put them in compostable. We are super naive. It's like way harder for, I mean, I could spend two hours just talking about the challenges of compostable packaging. So I won't do that, but I'll just say it's way harder than it sounds because of all the supply chain differences between compostable and plastic. And it was like 2019 when we started selling, trying to make that transition away from plastic. And we are realizing we were trying to do too many things. We either have to just like say we're going to be a traditional CPG company and like sell our little snacks and plastic. Like, I mean, this is like literally what the rest of the industry does. Like we can't, that either has to be what we're doing or we need to pick up, we are saying we're fighting a plastic battle. And it's not about building a CPG brand. It's not about being in Costco. It's about figuring out how to adjust our business model and our strategy and everything we do to solve this issue And part of that includes building our brand without plastic, but there's also other elements that like supply chain elements and other things that feed into that, like 
North star of moving the industry away from plastic. And honestly, we almost went like the traditional CPG route. Yeah. Because I mean, that's like felt, an easier decision. It felt easier. And it's like, yeah, playbooks for this. Other people do yeah. this like over and we almost did it. And then COVID happened and wiped out 90% of our revenue. And it gave us a chance to like start with like a blank slate almost. It was like mm. this moment of like stillness that allowed us to say, where are our hearts? What are we actually passionate about here? And we're like, we're not really passionate about like just building, building just a brand is like, yeah, that's just not, yes, that'd be amazing to have our products like in Costco and Target and Walmart. That'd be really exciting, but it doesn't fill my heart. It's just like a cool achievement. And Verse this, I, I mean, like literally, like I would get like emotional, like thinking about like the first time the stuff arrived, the packaging arrived that was composable. I like cried, like I was like, oh my gosh, like this is so cool, like this is, yeah. And so COVID like forced us to kind of take a moment and like say like where are our hearts, like what do we want to build for, and it also gave us like a little bit of flexibility to start kind of experimenting with the new product market fit because all of our current retail, like we sold a lot in like coffee shops and hotels and fitness studios and all those corporate offices, all those places that were just closed. And it gave us like the opportunity to like kind of try new things and ended up like coming out of that experience, fully making this commitment of like, this is about like a movement away from plastic, not just building a snack food brand. That's awesome. So it's almost like you kind of had this emotional attachment to wanting to create a movement, but Mm -hmm. COVID really kind of helped solidify it. It's interesting how things kind of happen in the world and force people down a certain path, you know? It's really interesting. I can't even think about how many times, you know, maybe I've lost a job just because I'm supposed to be an entrepreneur. Yes. (laughs) No, totally. It's like, okay, universe, like I get it. I know. No, exactly. And I feel like it's funny because like I, in hindsight, like COVID was, I mean, we lost all of our revenue of what we've been building for like two years. Like it was in hindsight, in a way, it was like one of the hardest moments, but in hindsight, it was like, this was one of the best things that could have happened to us because it let us figure out what we really wanted to do. And not just like what we wanted to do, but there's a much bigger opportunity in what we're doing. Like we're solving yeah. a bigger problem. We're really solving a problem versus just kind of like bringing out like something that was a nice to have versus a need to have for some people. And yeah, I, I really like, that's like my motto as like an entrepreneur. I had to adopt it is everything happens for a reason and the universe has a plan. And that's like what gets me through the like crazy stuff because you have to have some way to get through like all that yeah. stuff that happens. <laughs> so. And so now that you guys are kind of past the struggle of trying to figure out a crack the nut on compostable packaging for snacks, right? You have it figured out, it looks like, at least for now. And, you know, where do you see this going? Are you guys doing white labeling? Like, I'm sure the demand is, I mean, other snack brands have probably seen what you're doing and they're like, hey, so uh, where can I get some of that? Yeah. So that was the huge, a really big learning for us when we decided to go all in on like the compostable is like, it's not, there's people who will like buy snacks and sustainable packaging. So like makes them feel better. There's businesses and people out there that have zero waste commitments, plastic free commitments or goals, and they literally don't have solutions. Like there's no solutions out there. And that's where we're like, we're really solving a problem for them. And what we've learned from talking to our target customers or core customers is they're like, Hey, we love your line of healthy snacks. Great. We're going to swap out our other healthy snacks for your healthy snacks. But what about like all the other stuff we sell? Like what about like all the the rest of the market? Like what about our chips and our popcorn and all these other things? And so it's really led us to like, as a, even though we're a food company, we don't innovate on like trying to make the newest, coolest product. Like it's not about making like a seaweed mushroom for us. It's like, we try to recreate very simple things and just like package them better. So right now our revenue is still primarily driven by our brand, but we are starting to pilot some of the, like letting other brands into our supply chain through white labeling, et cetera. And ultimately our vision is to just be like a full marketplace, both for consumers and B2B or wholesale mm-hmm. accounts and businesses looking to buy things plastic free. You can buy so, our brands, you can buy other brands, et cetera. And so do you own the supply chain then? of creating this packaging? We don't make the packaging. Like we're not material scientists. That's kind of like there's material science companies out there that are making the packaging, but nobody's putting them on market in the food industry. 
So that's kind of like where we come in is like, we've tried all the different types of packages. So we have like a lot of knowledge and proprietary, you know, just from working with all these different types of packaging. What one thing that we do, I think to my knowledge, we're the only company in the US that has this is we have like a packaging line that's dedicated to plant-based compostable packaging. One of the biggest learnings we had was it's just like, it ultimately comes down on how it like runs on the machine. It Mm. runs different than plastic, which makes it really hard to just go take a machine that's running 99.9% on plastic and throw a compostable roll. Like that doesn't work. It's not calibrated for it. Teams aren't trained for it. And so that's where we've invested is like the ability to like make it and package. And in our mind, it's like, we don't need to, if you can get a stadium that wants to do like plastic free peanuts or something, and we just run them on our line, like that's like a huge opportunity itself. So there's Mm -hmm. so much just by, in that world of just bringing together like the materials that are out there and actually running them on a machine that can handle them and getting stuff on the market. So it's like co-packing. You're able to do the co-packing piece. Yeah. 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 Interesting. But we're also like, we have to build our brand to show it can be done because nobody else is doing it. So we can't go out there and be like, Hey, we're going to do this for everybody, but we don't know what shelf life is going to be. And we don't know who wants it. Like we're showing it can be done. We're building a market for it. And then we can bring other brands in and let them be a part of the market that we've built. It's almost like we not only can help other brands bring them into our supply chain, but then we also have like distribution for them too. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. I feel like you're just going to have like, I mean, maybe you already do a crazy wait list of brands that want to be yeah. having the same packaging. Yeah. Yes. It's, there's a lot of brands that want to do it and it's not just within food. Like there's like, right. brands and like all these other industries that are like, yes, like everybody and, should be doing yeah. this. Every yeah. single brand should be doing this. Yeah. And question on compostable though, because I've learned that compostable can mean different things like mm-hmm. commercial compostability versus yep. in your home compostable. So is this yep. home compostable packaging? So we have a variety of ones we work on, depending on what channel selling in, what product we're we're working with. And that's like, my vision is like, if you're a brand and you're coming to me, I'm like, hey, instead of like, here's your paint samples, like here are like your eight materials that you can use. And this one's home and this one's industrial. So yeah, um, we work with a variety of them. So commercially compostable can be composted in an industrial facility, but only if the industrial facility takes things other than food scraps. So there's even like a nuance there. Mm -hmm. Home compostable is obviously the ideal, but to be able to like everything we use right now is will break down a home compost, but if it's not certified, you can't like advertise it as such. So you have to be careful with that. And home compostable has a shorter shelf life. So for us, we can work with home compostable because our, we don't sell in grocery. Like we actively stay at a grocery, but if somebody was coming to me and saying, Hey, I want to put my products that are in grocery and compostable, I would say definitely do not do home compostable. Like you got to do industrial Mm. because it's going to have like higher barrier properties and stuff. So it really is like super dependent on like what channel you're selling in. How does that even work with commercial, like this industrial compostable? So if you're a consumer and you buy a product that's in this industrial compostable packaging, how do you get it to the place where it will actually decompose in an industrial setting? Like the reality is like the odds in today's like infrastructure, our infrastructure in the US, it's not that high. Like for our brand, we have a send back program where people send back their bags to us and then we compost them for mm, them. Yeah. So we can close the loop for people who really want to like make sure they're participating. Like we offer that service, but it's like whether you're buying a snack in compostable packaging or you're going to a restaurant and getting a compostable bowl in a compostable cup, that's stuff like it's only getting composted if the facility like has the ways to sort through it and like, and also the timelines to support it. So when we actually, it was a couple of years ago, we had like an intern, like call hundreds of compost facilities around like the country to like figure out like who would take things. And the majority of them only take food scraps. So like, even if you're like in Santa Barbara, where we live, like we can't throw anything in the compost other than food scraps. Hmm. And like, you would think we'd be like further ahead than that. Yeah. But most people don't know it. So most people are throwing like a compostable bowl in the compost. If they see an industrial compost, they're going to throw it in there. But a lot of times that's getting pulled out. So yeah, if we're not careful, it will turn into like another recycling problem. Like, so it's like, that's the whole another piece is like managing like the composting infrastructure to make sure 
that things end up where they need to be. Like our solution for now is our return program, which we are doing both with our DTC customers and also some really B2B customers. What's the percentage of people that ship things back to you for for this compostable element? We have like 25% of people and they pay for it. So it's a paid program for us. So, I mean, if it was free, I feel like it'd be higher, but we're just, we're, we, we can't afford to do How much that is yet. It? Just 10 bucks for an envelope that it's basically an envelope and it holds, depending on if you're buying our snack packs or our bigger bags, like it can hold like up to like 40, we sell like pantry size bags, like cashews and almonds and stuff like that. It can hold up to 40 bags of those for 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. So it's not that much. And then people just collect them. And then once every couple months, send it back to us and get a new one. And so we're basically charging them for the postage to return it to us and like the extra labor that like it takes us in materials, to like get the bag to them. It's like a break even thing for us right now. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And 25%. Yeah. It's not a low number, but it's definitely not high. You would expect it to be maybe a little higher, but there's some friction there. I think for a lot of people, it's like buying it is like, good enough. You know, it's like, they're also like, mm-hmm. it takes a certain type of person to go out of your way to collect all your bags from a brand and send it back to them. It's a oh, committed, yeah. you're committed. And we have a lot of ideas we want to implement on like how to make it like, we want to like kind of gamify it. Like there's like a lot of ideas we have to like get that number up. Yeah. It's definitely like a, you're committed to really seeing it through to the end. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, Hey, I, I'm taking a good enough step by like supporting a brand that's like doing all these cool things and I'm buying healthy food and I buy it. And we still think that's a million times better than going and buying a bag of plastic almonds that you have no idea where they came from, like from the grocery Mm -hmm. store. So it's still better, but yeah, we'd love to see hundred percent people do it. So. But do you think the average consumer just assumes that with compostable packaging, they can just put it in the normal trash and then when it goes to the landfill it'll eventually decompose. I, think I can tell you before I started selling products in compostable, I had no idea like anything right. about this. And yeah. I'm probably aligned with, we have two types of customers. Um, one that's like really like committed to zero waste. Like they discover us because they're trying to go plastic free. And then the other customer we have is somebody who's just trying to make the positive changes and they're like small steps in the right direction. So not necessarily, they might not bring their like reusable mug to the coffee shop, but they will use a reusable water bottle. It's like, if it's easy, they'll do it. And, and honestly, like I'm more of the second person. I've like, obviously dedicated my life to like solving this bigger problem, but we drive an EV, but like, I don't ride my bike because like, I value that there's like this balance of convenience and sustainable. Right. And so I think that for a lot of the people who I would say like, are more on like people like me who are just trying to make small changes. Like a lot of people think that if you just put it in your trash, it's going to biodegrade. Like it's going right. to, like, it's going to disappear over time. Right. And so we have to educate. That's like a big piece of what we try to do is like, this is where you can compost. Like, and if don't throw it in the trash, like don't, it's not going to come in the trash. Like send it back to us. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like, but what happens when you put it in the trash, how long does it take to decompose if at all? I mean, I don't even have a timeline on it because it's like putting food waste in the trash. Like you don't want to put food waste in the trash. It like releases Mm. gases that like, it's really not ideal that we all do it. Like, and so, but that's like, you can kind of think of it as like a piece of food. Our timeline in compost is 180 days. I don't even like know if I, I don't even know what it would be in trash. Like it's. Wow. Like 780. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it'd be longer. And like, In my mind, it's still better than like petroleum-based plastic, even if it doesn't end. Like there's so many things that have to be solved. Like you got to get people to stop buying things in plastic. Then you got to like make sure it's like ending up in the right place. But we also like, I mean, we spent most of our time talking about compostable, but like ultimately our mission is moving away from plastic and that expands beyond compostable. So we're also piloting right now, like some reusable stuff as well. The ideal state is no packaging, like no packaging at all. Like ideally you're buying everything from your farmer's market or like your reusable bag and you're going to your bulk store. So we feel like the compostable solution is an interim solution to make it easy for people to make that step in the right direction if they can't do the ideal state. And then we're trying to do our, like some of the stuff we're piloting on is in more of an ideal state because it's doing reusable. 
So yeah, it's definitely like, we still have like a long journey to go to yeah. even like get people where we want everyone to be. So. Well, it's a very admirable journey you guys are on and you know, yeah, it's you. no small feat. So congratulations on how far you've been able to take this. Thank you. Tell us about, I guess, your fundraising journey, any challenges that you've had along the way. Yeah. I mean, I think when I started the business, I think I had a battle of like ego versus like authenticity. My authentic self is to build a bootstrapped business. It just works for me. And it doesn't mean small. It doesn't mean growing slow. It just is like more aligned with what I want to do. And I didn't know that going in, I saw these like headlines and I'm like, oh, I want to be like a headline. And like, I want to be that person who's like posting this on LinkedIn. And that led to a lot of like unclear strategy in fundraising when we first started. In hindsight, I'm like, okay, like if we would have had a strategy, we would have spread ourselves so thin, but we were kind of trying to do like all the things. So we ended up starting with just like a small friends and family round. And then we did in 2021, we did an equity crowdfunding round. And we like, I think that's when I realized like, oh my gosh, I, I loved the equity crowdfunding because Unlike pitching to like my you guys used WeFunder, we I used think WeFunder, right? yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But like my experience of pitching to VCs, which I'm sure is like everybody's experience pitching to VCs, and I came in being like, oh, I got this. Like I'm like I have you know a good degree. I'm like right all these things. And, Harvard MBA. Yeah. I mean, speaks their language. Right, but at the end Insulting. of the day, like, <laughs> yes, exactly. And like so, it's it was definitely really easy for me to get meetings. At the end of the day, like there's, I think a couple things. First of all, like the stats, like you know, we all know the stats of like what's going to female founders, but put that aside. Like, I feel like I can like overcome the stats. Like, well, female founder, but you also have a co-founder who's male. Totally. Totally. Which is funny because people are like, why don't you leverage him more in pitching? And I'm like, I was always the one pitching because I'm like, I got this. I'm the consultant. Like, I mean, like, so I would go pitch by myself or I lead it all. So that was like, it's funny. It's like, I didn't like, I should have been more, that's why I'm like, I should have been more strategic about it. I should have been like, Hey, I know the numbers. I know I got this, but like, it's just, you know, like I said, like the strategy wasn't quite there. I was still navigating. Also, I'm way too, this comes back to like my perfectionist and like my, this comes back to like the auditor in me. It's like, I'm not the best at selling a huge vision. I can talk to our team about vision. Like I can get on a call and talk about vision, but like when mm-hmm. I go to like pitch somebody, I've gotten better at this over time. Like this has been right. years of doing this. I've gotten a lot yeah. better. But when I first started, I was selling a story of being like a small CPG brand. And like, Mm. that's not a a VC investable business. That's a angel investable business. Not a small CPG brand, but like this, just a CPG brand, I guess I would Mm -hmm. say. I don't think it was a VC investable business. I think what we're doing now, what we've come around to is a venture investable business or institutional investable business, but we've kind of already chosen our path. And like, we're continuing to like go down the path we're going and ultimately, like, I think my goal is to go from ultimately to like PE and doing, continuing to do like equity crowdfunding angels, like get us there. So I don't know. I just learned a lot. Like just, I, I, again, a classic case of me not asking for help. Like, I think if I would have started and asked a bunch of people like strategy advice before doing it, I would have been a lot better at it, but I didn't. And I just kind of like struggled through and learned lessons along the way. And I was like, okay, like in the future, like in future, like that's how you like do this, you know? But it yeah. worked for what we did is worked for us. And ultimately, like we're super happy with the fundraising journey we chose and ended up with. So so what's the roles and responsibilities for your partner, your co-founder and husband? What is he mostly in charge of? He's like head of sales. So a large part mm-hmm. of our business is B2B. And is he like, like a big vision guy? Yes. So this is like his vision. <laughs> should have like, been in these meetings. He's your partner. Doing, raising all the money. No, I know. And he, you know, he wasn't, he's in the meetings like, I think I was trying to control them. it too much. Yeah. Have you heard of like, I think it's from the book Traction where it's like the visionary and yes. the integrator. It's an amazing I'm the, book. I'm the total integrator. Like I am yes. definitely the integrator. Right. And I didn't realize that because I was like, well, it's my idea. Like I'm the visionary, but mm-hmm. my husband is the one, like he gets our team going and like he's yeah. selling and he's like great at telling the story. And like, I'm really great at putting the project in place, getting to operate, like the systems running, like the machine oil, like that's like my role. And like, yeah. It literally took me like a really long time to realize that. And it's funny because even like the roles we were each in, like have kind of shifted once we, like for a while, like he was running operations and like, he was so drained by it. Like, and it was like, (laughs) we kind of tossed the roles around a lot. Like we always had clear defined roles, but we Mm -hmm. moved around and I ultimately were like, okay, like we 
understand a lot more about ourselves and our strengths and weaknesses. And like in the future, next business, Brian goes and sells and gets all the investors. And I just like run the ship. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting. That's funny. Well, it sounds like complimentary skill sets, which yes. is great. How big is the team now? And how have you evolved as a leader personally and professionally? We have like uh, four full-time employees and then also a little crew of, of part-time and freelancers to help us out. So we're still pretty small. I mean, I think for me, there's just been so much, I've learned so much about A, like what's held me back. Like I've done a lot of like shadow work. I've done like a lot of this work on myself, you know, why I feel like I need to control things or how can I let go or Mm -hmm. what are like my true strengths and true, true weaknesses, like what really drives me. And I do believe that I, for, I would say up until probably like this past year, I was trying to be the person I thought I should be versus like as the leader I thought I should be. Like I said, like, I'm going to go raise the money. Like that's like my job. Yeah. Like, I'm the CEO. Like that's my job versus really like finding like who I really authentically am and like leaning into that. Yeah. And once I started doing that, like things just started to get a lot better. And like, even like it was probably about like three months ago that I realized like I had gone so we started our business and then like in 2020, we had a baby. I had another baby last year and last year was just like a crazy year. We were scaling and it was like really challenging. And I kind of went in like, I would say like a dark, like, you know, you have those like dark moments as like an postpartum entrepreneur. Postpartum or are we talking? It different? wasn't postpartum. It wasn't okay. postpartum. Like I actually was like super blissed out after I had my baby. I had like three, I was like, oh nice. I wasn't on full maternity leave. Like I was still working, but like not like my husband was, had things covered and like, but we had a lot of change and then we were growing a lot. Like we had yeah. a lot of growth. And so I kind of like came back from taking like, I had like two months where I was just working like part, like mm-hmm. less. Mm-hmm. That was like my version of maternity. When, leave, I guess. when the baby's napping. Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and you and, um, should be napping too, yes, but you're not. I know, but you're not. No, you can't. <laughs> and then I came back and we were like, we had all these, like a lot of big, exciting growth. It's only because I had like, I was looking at like what I, you know, it was trying to manifest last year was like some revenue target and we like got there, but like it brought all these scale issues with it and yeah. like operational issues. And I realized like, it was like five months of everything felt so hard and so difficult and I could not get in a good headspace. It was like really, really hard. And I realized a couple months ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not taking care of myself at all. I'm not sleeping. I'm not working yeah. out. I'm not eating well. Like, I mean, I'm eating, but I'm like not eating like consistently. I'm like starving, like not eating all morning, like shoving my face with like, you know, nuts in the afternoon. Like it just wasn't good. I wasn't doing like, like any mindfulness practice. And like the second I started incorporating that back to even, I can do this. I can overcome anything. I can overcome any hurdle. Like it was, yeah. it was very enlightening for me to see like at the end of the day and everybody says it, but I think I had to go through it to realize like, if I'm not taking care of myself, like I cannot, I have to be able to do that to be the best leader I can be. And it's not, it's not selfish to take like time to work out. It's like helping everybody around me. Yeah. That was a big wake up call for me for sure. That's great. So before we wrap up, what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or those currently in the trenches and what's next for Sun and Swell Foods? Yeah. So I think my advice is, and it might sound cliche, but it's not about the end. It is about the journey. And sometimes the journey is way longer than you think. It's usually very different than you think it's going to be. And if you just continue to focus, like if all you can focus is on an end goal, especially if you put a time period on that end goal, it's not going to be a very fun journey. So that, and just like trusting the universe, if you can trust the universe and if you can like just be on board that, like it's all going to happen for a reason, then that can usually keep you in a pretty good headspace throughout all the ups and downs. And then what's next for us is we're just, we have so much work to do. We're just at the tip of the iceberg, but everything we've been doing so far has been focused on just building our brand, proving it can be done. Now we're starting to kind of expand into like these other, like invite, like opening up the supply chain, stuff like that. So it's kind of, for me, it's like the fun parks. You're kind of like, you're, it's like, again, building something new. Like we mm-hmm. still have to keep the ship running, but like, there's also new things to try. And it's constantly a game for me of like, can't do everything. So there's a million things we want to do. So yeah. stay focused on like one, you know, what we're doing and one new thing at a time. But that's kind of the next, opening up our supply chain is kind of like the next focus that we're going to start experimenting with. 
Amazing. Awesome. Well, Kate, it's been so fun having you on the show and hearing your awesome story and building Sun and Swell Foods. I'm so excited for what you guys are building and doing in such a positive way to try to eliminate plastic. Really big kudos to you and your team on all of the progress you guys have made. Thank you so much. It's been fun chatting. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.